Um, yeah, I started listening about a year ago. It was one of the only times in my life where there were people openly talking about domestic violence and in the different capacities that they were was, was really um, eye-opening and comforting to me. And so it took me a long time to work up the courage to send you an email. <laughs> um, but I knew that as much as I had gained from other primarily women's stories, I, I really hope that something of my story can be beneficial to someone else, like everyone else's. When Dating Hurts podcast continues to grow in popularity, the more who listen, the more who will know the realities of dating and domestic violence. In the meantime, the When Dating Hurts book in paperback, ebook, and audiobook is being purchased and read by concerned parents, teachers, victims, and survivors, and of course, those who are currently dating. Education leads to empowerment. That way, if a potential abuser is targeting you or someone you care about, you will know how to detect it and how to break free and stay safe. Up next, another survivor story to illustrate how an innocent person can become manipulated and trapped in abusive relationships. This is a three-part story that demonstrates how an innocent college freshman named Sabrina can be carefully manipulated into an abusive and violent relationship. This narrative is a good one to share with someone with a high school daughter at home about to enter college. Most of our children go into college not knowing or taking seriously dating abuse or domestic violence. They probably don't know much about them. But understand this, there are predators out there just waiting to pull our daughters in and take over their lives. Sabrina's story is a textbook case about a young woman entering college completely unprepared for what was about to come at her. Sabrina was not only a college freshman, she was a predator's target. Today on the When Dating Hurts podcast, we're speaking with Sabrina, and she says, words cannot describe the benefits I've gained from listening to your podcast. And she also goes on and says, the story I've heard on When Dating Hurts have helped me to feel less alone, crazy, and frankly, less stupid. And a lot of people say the same kind of things. They feel very alone. They wonder what's wrong with them. They almost feel like they've caused the abuse to happen to themselves. I'm glad that the podcast is helpful. With that in mind, Sabrina, you wanted to come on today and you wanted to be as helpful as others have been for you. Absolutely. Yeah, so... Thanks for having me, Bill. Welcome. I would really like to to first start by thanking you for the work that you do. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, the, I, I really uh, appreciate all that you have taken and what you have done with your grief and your pain and the loss of your daughter. I think that's that's what hardships are for, right? You know, that's part of life is what you do in those super challenging moments and to me, and I'm sure many others, this is a really great use of your time. I appreciate it. I agree with that. And, and I really wouldn't have it any other way. I don't want to be thinking of her in the past tense all the time. I want her to be actively working with me and others to help others do things for them that were never done for her. 
my wife and I did not know about dating and domestic violence. Not really. I mean, we knew the cliches and the stereotypes, but we didn't know it from warning signs all the way through why people do what they do and, and how to get free and, and who to turn to. We didn't know any of those things. I mean, we're just, uh, didn't know. I'm glad you're here to tell us. So where would you like to start your story? I think uh, I'd just like to start from the beginning, from my childhood. I think that I was a uh, unlikely victim. And a lot of those characteristics about me are were not something that, you know, was the stereotypical uh, battered woman mm-hmm. kind of person. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I grew up in the Midwest on a cattle farm I had a, a, a lovely, close-knit family. You grew up on a cattle farm? Yes. Okay, just for a moment. Yeah, yeah. Paint that picture a little bit. What are we talking about here? I mean, is it the picture I have in my mind with the big skies and all the cattle? and? Yeah, absolutely. Cattle in the hundreds? What are we talking about? Maybe 200. Uh, you know, it's not a huge operation, but uh, I'm sixth generation on my farm. So it's it's been around since I, th- I think it was the 1870s, I believe. Wow. It was very, very early. So my family's been there a long time and it is very, you know, you don't see it as a kid, of course, in the middle of it. But looking back, it's very storybook kind of perfect kind of childhood setting. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's terrific. Okay. It gave me a lot of really good characteristics, you know, a lot of, it is it's kind of stereotypical, but in moving away, I have found that I think there's a reason for the stereotype, the hardworking, you know, when you have ownership of something that meaningful, it kind of translates to your personality, you know, now that's just kind of when I'm doing something, I want to take the responsibility for it. And that has served me in a lot of ways. And that's just one of the benefits of that kind of childhood. Do you think it's the life living there? Or do you think it's your parents? Both. I, I definitely think helping you get to that yeah, place. I think it's a familial thing. Definitely. I think my parents were the biggest influence of that, but it's also the lessons learned with particularly, you know, taking care of a, a something that's alive. That's a huge responsibility. And my family always took that very seriously. And I think that that was, that taught me a lot of really good lessons growing up. I would think growing up in a, in a situation like that is you get up in the morning and you have things you have to do. You don't have to look for motivation is what right. I'm saying. If you're living there, you have to get up and you have to do this and right. feed this and move this. And yeah. My dad always said the cows don't care that it's Christmas. Like they got to get fed anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, my role was a little removed from that. My dad didn't really want me in particular, his daughter to be a farmer. So he pushed me to do other things. So, you know, I had a few responsibilities, but nothing, nothing big farm time. What do you think your father wanted you to do? What direction? He never really led me in any particular direction, but once I got old enough to kind of choose what I wanted, he was always supportive of that. I thought I wanted to be an OBGYN for the longest time, and that's what he was gung-ho about because, you know, I grew up watching cows give birth all the time, and I've always been very fascinated by all of that. Things changed, (laughs) but that was the dream he was supporting at the time. Now, did you have siblings? I did. Yeah. I have a little brother. Okay. Little brother. He's a few years younger than me. Where's he currently? He's back home running the farm. He's following in the footsteps of many. Yes, he is. He's doing a great job. Yeah. Right. After high school, I moved about two hours away from the farm and went to a large 
university in my state. And it was a very exciting time. You know, I, I the town I grew up in was very small. My parents did a lot to, you know, have me travel. But as far as prolonged exposure to new culture and all these new ideas of young people. And I remember just being kind of shocked by some of the things I was seeing on campus, you know, like the protests and whatnot. But it was like I opened my eyes and there was a whole new world. I remember crying in my very first class of college because I was just so moved and excited by the opportunities of learning and of just the things I'd never even conceived of. So this was kind of a moment of me reflecting and and noticing that I had somewhat been, uh, I want to say sheltered because my parents intentionally put energy into having me see the world and be aware of other cultures. But somehow I think it's just a small town. Like there was just a lot that I hadn't been exposed to, which is kind of good. You know, (laughs) If, if I'm thinking about what, you know, what could be good for a child, then it's kind of good. But that was a big moment. And from there, I had gotten, it was, I think it still is, but it was the hot thing to get on Tinder, do these online profiles and online dating. And uh, so I was doing that. Had you done any of that before you went to college at no, all? No, not at all. You weren't juggling apps no, on your phone? No, no, not so much. In my small town, okay. there was, you knew what you had to choose from pretty much. <laughs> So maybe people were doing it, but I wasn't. I get on there. He was Jake, is uh, the guy that I met there. And he was the first and only guy that I met online. I spoke to others, but he was the only one I really met. And it was pretty intense from the start. You know, not negatively intense, just, just that kind of stereotypical, really intense romance that starts do you attribute that to to love bombing or do you attribute that to it means just you both were sort of equally engaged and enjoying the relationship? No, it was it was definitely love bombing. Um in in retrospect, if I had the knowledge I have now, I could have seen this coming miles away. Sure. But you know, I was very attracted to him for a lot of reasons, you know, he was very exotic and knew the world. And, you know, I was a freshman, he was a senior. We were both on a pre-med tract. We had a lot of similar interests and this is shallow yet felt important at the time. Um, I'm very tall. I'm six two. So I had never been with a man that was as tall or taller than me. So coming to this big city and there's all of these people that are taller than me, it was comforting and I felt like a weirdo being that tall for most of my life. But now, you know, I have this guy that's bigger and taller than me. And that was very exciting. Turned out to not be beneficial. <laughs> um, but at the time, it was something that drew me to him and to the experience. Sure. But very quickly, it soured. You know, we spent about a week seeing each other every day. Lots of love bombing. So you went to the same school? Same college. So we were going to class, meeting up in between, seeing each other after. Sure. And a week goes by and then he just stops talking to me. And, you know, I'm not Mm. one to be really aggressive. um, So I didn't reach out much. But after about two weeks, he reached back out to me and asked me to come to his apartment. And I had, you know, I basically thought like this guy 
it's done. I hadn't really thought too much about it in a few days, you know, but he invites me over. He has this elaborate setup, all these rose petals, this whole romantic scene. And he has a sign taped up on the wall that says, will you be my girlfriend? So after this, you know, couple week hiatus, I walk directly back into he's wanting commitment from me. Like feast or famine. Yeah, right off the bat. You know, you kind of go from things feel pretty good in the beginning. He cuts your water off for two weeks yep. and then he hits you full force with uh, the big show. Hmm? Yep. So it was, it was a lot and I didn't recognize the danger in that at the time. You didn't recognize the danger, but what did you feel? At that time, you walk in and it's like, oh my God, look at this thing. It's like surprise party. Yeah. I mean, I felt special. I mean, you felt good? I did. Yeah. I had had some relationship experience, but I had never experienced the the break. So in my head, I had all of these justifications, you know, it's just whenever I was so excited by him and I thought he could teach me so much and had all these fantasies in my head as to what this relationship could be. And I was, I was, yeah, I was gung ho to hop back in and sign up. We see things clearly in the rear view mirror, don't we? Mm-hmm. You have this major blowout. I picture myself going from a boring day into walking through the gates of Disney world. Yeah. This is what you experienced with like, wow, the color, the, mm-hmm. the aroma of that scene, the whole yeah. thing is just too much. So when the sun comes up the next day, what's the follow-up? So now we go into, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend mode where we're seeing each other after class and spending time together. It all felt relatively normal at that point. You know, he was very expressive in his his affection, mm-hmm. very expressive in how he thought I was all of these things, you know, very communicative about his affection in a way that I hadn't experienced before. So just a a classic way Mm -hmm. to draw you in at that point. And it evidently worked pretty well. It did. Did you ever ask him about the missing two weeks or do you just run in with this thing at this point? I asked him and he just, he just spoke to that. It was fear of the relationship because he knew how much he cared about me and wanted to be with me. And, you know, I, I just bought that hook, line and sinker, of course, as 18 year olds do. (laughs) So yeah, the, the beginning was Pretty stereotypical. So this was the fall. This was the fall that we got together. Then in the spring, my dad got sick. He was diagnosed and said that he had about six weeks to live in in March. He goes from getting around okay to finding out he's got a month and a half. Yep. Um, What is dad dealing with? He had cirrhosis and it had gotten to the point, you know, he's typical farm guy where He'd never been to the doctor my whole life. That was not a part of his world. So at this point, you're heading towards the end of your freshman year. And then you get this horrible news about dad. Yep. So. And was that six week prediction that hold up? It was. Really? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I'm so sorry. So that's, yeah, it was very, very, very challenging time. You know, I knew he wasn't of. I knew he wasn't going to live till he was 100, but never in my wildest dreams did I think it would happen this decade, let alone then. So, yeah, that was very challenging. It was very quick, and I spent a lot of family time, a lot of time at the farm during that that stretch. 
I think he was 51 or 52 when he died. When he first got sick, they took him to a hospital in the city I was living, where I was going to school. That was convenient. And while there, you know, it's a couple hours from my hometown. So my family and my close friends are all traveling a couple hours to sit with us at the hospital because, you know, we were there the whole time. Jake was very, I remember being very surprised at his reaction to this situation. He basically just wanted to pretend like it wasn't happening. He didn't come to the hospital. He didn't ask how my dad was. Not supportive? Not supportive, not interested whatsoever. Maybe this was a little bit of a nuisance. It kind of, it was getting in yeah. the way of his, his uh, campaign, exactly. so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was something that I just kind of took notice of. But obviously my reflection into my relationship at this point was very minimal. Like it was kind of on the back burner to me. So then my dad passes away. He, Jake does not attend the funeral. So that was kind of where all of my friends and family got off team Jake, obviously. And I was hurt, but I bought the excuses. You know, I, I just, I was just very um, naive and trusting. What excuses did he try to feed you? Supposedly his father was in town the day of my father's funeral. His family had lived eight hours away or something. So it supposedly, and I don't know, you know, no telling if that was the truth or not, but, um, you know, I bought that as if that were, you know, excuse again, I'm just kind of emotionally overwhelmed. Otherwise Mm -hmm. I'm not really understanding the danger I'm in by not focusing on my relationship, but I just didn't have the capacity. I was, I was overwhelmed with grief, with this feeling of kind of unsafety. You know, he had been the man of the family, you know, whenever I heard a creak in the night, I was comforted by his snore, you know, like there's a lot of that. And there was some shifting of that happening because I'd moved to college and I'm trying to become an adult on my own. But there was definitely this underlying feeling of kind of shakiness with the fact that my dad had just passed away oh, and I'm sure. just becoming a woman. Um, So that that theme, I think, really carries throughout the story where I kind of started in this relationship. We had been together maybe three or four months when my dad died. So that was kind of a foundation of the relationship was my emotional uh, unstableness, you know. Yeah, I had just turned 19 when my dad passed away. And I'm just kind of overwhelmed by all of that emotion. So that summer, I just got a job and I worked in my hometown And Jake was still in the city a couple hours away. It was pretty normal. You know, I'd go up there on the weekends or whatever. But uh, the wrench in all of this is that he had been planning to go live in France that fall. And I knew about this for a long time. Um, But after my dad passed away, I thought, what a great opportunity to go and see the world and try to come back to myself a little bit through experiencing new things. Any 19 year old is going to be excited to travel at the opportunity. So Mm -hmm. he asks me to come with him to France. We're going to live there for eight months, travel Europe while we're there, 
So I agree. You know, I switched to doing school online. We start making plans to go to France in in that fall. Mm -hmm. So the night before we get on the plane was our first fight. We had never had any kind of confrontation. I'm kind of confrontation averse in general. I I (laughs) try to avoid it when possible, Um, which that's something that I'm constantly working on in myself. What you're saying is you're trying to be more confrontational. Yeah, honestly, I think that I, I really respect it. So few people would say that. I think that's great. It's, char- yeah. it's charming. It really is. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be more confrontational. Oh, good. <laughs> I know. It's something that, you know, you you learn. Well, for me, I've, I've had these safe relationships where it's comfortable. It's safe for me to have confrontation, which that was kind of like a somewhat mellow personality characteristic I had throughout my life. And then with Jake, that kind of took a front seat, Mm. you know, because it wasn't safe to have confrontation. And so that's something I'm having to work through and try to shove back to the back seat. Like, you know, if you don't stand up for yourself, if you don't call something out when it's wrong, that's just not okay. And it's dangerous, clearly. Uh, And you kick yourself. Why didn't I say this? What's wrong mm -hmm. with me? Absolutely. During that first fight, right before we go to France, it, uh, packing suitcases and we're packing bags. And I don't remember what the fight was about. I I honestly don't have any recollection, but what I do remember about it is that he completely shut down. He immediately went into stonewalling, like literally would not speak. You know, as soon as the confrontation came up, he maybe we had like two or three back and forths. And then after that, Mm -hmm. just absolute stonewalling. And I was crazed by that. That was something that I had never experienced. I felt so disrespected and confused and just, it was so disturbing. Would you later think of that as someone being passive aggressive? It's an aggressive thing to pull. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's passive aggressive. So you're not getting what you want and that person shuts down. Yeah. And now you're even angrier. Yeah, it's manipulative for sure. It's it's a really good way to get a reaction out of people. Um, and when you're not expecting that, that's exactly that's exactly what I did was gave him the reaction that he was trying to get. Yes. Went through with it, you know, went to France. Everything was fine for a while, but it was a very it was just ripe for emotional abuse, the whole situation. You know, I'm in grief over my father. I'm across the world from all of the people I'm close to. I spoke very, very little French. I would get such anxiety going to the grocery store when someone would try to talk to me and I, I couldn't understand. I just learned to say, and I can't even remember it now. I just learned to say, I'm sorry, my French is not good. <laughs> um, so I was very isolated. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. That was it. Um, could he speak French a little bit? Very well. Very well. Oh, really? So he yeah. had that over you too? Yes. So he was... You had to rely upon him. Yeah, for everything there. Um, so he was going to work there and I was staying home in our little apartment, keeping the apartment and going to school online. And it was very, very isolating. It got to the point where he was starting to express some controlling tendencies in regards to 
my phone calls with my family and my friends. Like he, he didn't approve. I always tried to do it while he was not there. What reason did he give for you not having these calls? Was it a, was it a, a monetary reason or is it just, you don't need to talk to these people so much? How did he send it up? Yeah, I think. Why are you always on the phone with your mother and your brother? And Right. Exactly. Like, like taking away from our relationship and the time we have together or, you know, there was a lot of like judgment towards my family he had from, from the beginning. You know, a lot of people think old country folks, you know, dumb and, and not very experienced or, or whatever. There's a lot of stereotypes. Lack of sophistication. Right, exactly. So he kind of looked down on generally the people that I loved in my childhood from the get-go. And, you know, he wasn't super forward about that in the beginning, just so gradually starts throwing in little comments here and there that eventually it builds up to why are you still on your phone talking to your family, you know, when you could be hanging out with me. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of, you know, he felt entitled to all of my attention. Um, So that started to show in France a lot. I felt very, very isolated. I, you know, I was enjoying a a lot of the experience because we were traveling and, but within that relationship, I started to feel very suffocated because, you know, he was the only person I was interacting with. I was uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things while we were there, I would say our, our next big fight happened when he was at work, I was at home cleaning And I had thrown away this phone cord that didn't work anymore, just a charger cord. Mm -hmm. I had thrown it away. It was his, but it didn't work. And, you know, I'd proven that. He got home, eventually wanted the cord for something. I don't know what for, but he got so overwhelmingly angry at me for having thrown away this broken phone cord. And I remember being so shocked, kind of thinking... Maybe he's punking me like any minute he's going to just like snap out of and be like, ha ha, gotcha. But, you know, he did not He was very upset with me for having thrown away this cord at the time. It's just I felt like, oh, maybe maybe I did do something wrong. It was his, you know, I, I shouldn't make decisions about his property, whatever. But I justified that away. But that was the first, I think, really obvious move of trying to gain power over me was like, I control all material objects. You know, what you do in this house is under my control, just starting to assert control in any way he can. Yeah, it's obvious. Yeah. So things really deteriorated from there in France. He multiple times used the fact that I didn't speak French against me and in, in kind of dangerous ways, like we would be out walking in the street. I would say something or there would be some conflict and he would just dart off. He would just leave. He would just run away. I didn't know where I was. I couldn't ask for help. I, this happened multiple times. So I said, usually I could find my way back to the hotel, but he always had a key. So I would have to sit outside the door of our hotel rooms, just waiting for him to come back hours and hours and, you know, at this point, I'm not really wanting to call my mom and be like, hey, I'm uh, lost and alone out here in France. You know, I'm wanting to maintain this image with my family that things are okay and that he's a good guy and all these things that they had been not so sure of 
based on his reaction to my dad passing away and all of this, but more power games, more, more assertion of control. I think that also, I don't think this is, um, intentional, but I do think that in these dynamics where one person is constantly putting the other person in situations of panic, of terror, all these hormones that your body creates, I I honestly think that you get addicted to that as it happens and happens and happens. Your body just, I mean, in my experience, I just almost craved that feeling of terror where it's like, I was just so used to it happening all the time that this felt like the slow drip of that starting where I was put in these situations where I had felt fear like I'd never felt before, you know? So that was happening. So that happened in France. That happened whenever we went to Switzerland to visit a friend that I had there. He absolutely hated my friends. If I liked them, he did not. It was really challenging in Switzerland when I had seen this friend and I was trying to get him to come and he was so rude to her and so uncomfortable in the whole situation. Made a huge fuss of the the travel plans and staying in the hotel. He was always so concerned with other people bothering him in any kind of public space. Like in the hotel room, I remember one night that we stayed in Switzerland, we were up all night long because he was so mad that there was like a a sound, like a thump somewhere in the building. Like it was so, I would have never noticed it. I sleep right through that, but he was so upset and so frustrated all night long about this sound. It was a really challenging trip trying to keep, keep my friendship and keep him occupied. And, but let me ask you about this. So one of the things you were touching upon, which I hear a lot about, somehow I just feel like I hear it more and more lately, or maybe I'm just picking up on it. Maybe it's been there all along. But you kind of get to the point where you feel a little bit addicted to the drama of it all. Yeah, absolutely. The fear. Yeah. And I know from talking with, of course, a lot of people, when they have a relationship that has those ups and downs and fear factors and drama and craziness and things, they get away from that. Maybe they get into another relationship that doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. At least minimal drama. If anything, it's probably a much healthier relationship. But on the other hand, it's a little boring, you know, because we don't have those pitched battles. You Mm -hmm. know, we don't, we don't have those great times come in, you know, the surprise party type times. And then on the other hand, all out war, Yeah, things even, even out a lot. Absolutely. I mean, for me, in, in respect to that, I started creating these moments in my head of situations outside of romantic relationships after I had left. Whereas like I was looking for that hormone hit from these scenarios I would fabricate. This person is going to get upset at me at the grocery store and attack me or my coworker is going to get so upset with me at work that they're going to rush me, you know? So it was like, once I wasn't having the actual scenario in my life for a long time, I created that for myself in my head because I was just so, uh, kind of addicted to that feeling. You get to the point where your anticipation is there all the time and you, and like you say, you can kind of project or futurize Mm -hmm. 
oh, I bet this happens. Oh, I can't wait for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And then you're kind of disappointed because it didn't. Yeah. It didn't happen at all. Yeah. And it's just a kind of feeling of drawn out anxiety. You know, you're just waiting for the next thing to happen. This concludes part one with Sabrina. Be looking for part two on the When Dating Hurts podcast. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. If you feel we need to hear your story, do not hesitate to email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com.